0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us this Monday for a look at what's driving the markets and various stocks. My guests today are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison and Christopher Rossbach, Founder and Managing Partner of Jay Stern, a London and Zurich-based investment partnership. If you read Barron's this weekend, you know that we think this market is heading higher the bull is back and could stick around as more stocks join the rally. We're going to talk today about what's behind this rally, Chris and Ben. So first, welcome to Barron's Live, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Chris, you take the long view at J. Stern, as any good investor should, but let's talk for a moment about the near-term outlook. You know where we stand. What do you make of this market, and what do you see ahead?
1: I think that we're, I agree with the the argument that you've been making. I think we are looking at a market where we've really taken a lot of the hits. We have taken the hit on uh, the inflation from last year that's come out of the bottlenecks uh, that were caused by the pandemics. Uh, We've taken the hit on the interest rate rises. The Fed, after all, has uh, raised rates in six months, a faster pace. Than they've ever done and we've taken the hit on valuations we had one of the biggest factor based moves in markets last year and multiple compression multiple compression on high quality companies so i think we've taken a hit on all of those things and we're now at a point where some stocks have performed very strongly but a lot of them haven't their businesses are doing well and their valuations are cheap so i think we are looking at a very constructive
0: outlook What's going to make investors start paying attention to, let's say, the 492 stocks that haven't led the rally?
1: Well, I think it's going to be the fundamentals, uh, like always. And it's the resilient businesses that we've been seeing, regardless of exactly what the comparisons look like and whether uh, there's going to be a bit of a slowdown or not. I think you're seeing a lot of underlying demand. You have a robust underlying economic outlook. And so as we move into the second half of this year and to the first half of next year, I think we're going to find that that resilience continues and we're then going to see the results coming through. And I think whether that's some of the consumer companies that um, have have been held back because people have been waiting for the next shoe to drop on consumer spending or whether it's in particular, some of the industrial companies we like a lot that are going to be supported by the enormous investment that is going to be put in to support uh, and renew the infrastructure and to achieve some of the goals that we've set ourselves, I think there's a lot of underlying business that's gonna come through. And when those fundamentals come through, um, I think that's gonna be one of the key drivers. And I think the second key driver, that's the micro, which Mm we deal with. I think the second is the macro, which is when it becomes clear that inflation is really rolling over. And when it becomes clear that the Fed has finally hit the peak of the interest rate cycle, I think that's the other catalyst that people are going to have to say, well, now let's look at the stocks. And if we look at the S&P, we're going to find, as you say, there's a lot of them that are very attractive and haven't done very well.
0: So that leads into my next question, which is about the Fed. This is a huge week for the economy and the Fed. We'll get the latest inflation reading, the CPI report for May tomorrow. And the Fed will wrap up two days of meetings on Wednesday. The betting on Wall Street, as you know, is that they're going to skip a rate hike this month, but come back to raise interest rates again later in the summer to make sure that inflation really does fall. So how do you think the Fed's inflation fight is going so far?
1: I think that it looks like the Fed has done a very solid job. I think they've been data driven in terms of how they've gone about it. And I think, which is uh, after all, the approach that they've um, uh, always taken. And I think that uh, the the outcome that we're seeing is that um, they have been able to manage uh, this transition, I think, in a sensible way. I think there's a question, frankly, as to whether they should have acted as quickly as they did last year, whether they could have given themselves a longer timeframe to get to a a target rate range of say three and a half to four and a half percent. And obviously we're nowhere near at uh, the upper end of that. But I think as we're approaching uh, the uh, 4% range that is compatible with a growing economy and with an inflation that might be at 2 to 4% on a sustained basis for a while, but then will likely moderate after that, I think we're really getting there. So from my perspective, again, looking at the micro, whether they pause this week or whether we get the 25 pips rate rise or whether they do it uh, in July, I think it doesn't matter nearly so much as the fact that we're getting to the peak of this cycle, uh, and likewise, this question of what they're going to do in the second half of this year, uh, I think is is similar, going to be dependent on what uh, happens to these numbers.
0: So, can is it fair to say that they're going to bring down inflation without causing a recession? In other words, that mythical soft landing. Uh,
1: absolutely, I think I think that is what it is looking like. After all, the the, the point about Goldilocks is that it's neither too hot uh, nor too cold. And I think the Fed has a lot of tools at its disposal. If you remember, in the middle of the pandemic, we were sitting there and saying, well, they've got nothing. They've done quantitative easing, rates are at zero. And so what's the next tool that they've got? And we now are now in a position where they have effectively the whole set of uh, the whole toolbox available to them uh, in order to influence things. If things go, uh, if inflation ends up being too hot, uh, they can put out statements, they can change expectations. And if it's too low, Uh, they can uh, think about what they do in terms of uh, uh, the measures that they have for stimulus. So I think they have the whole toolbox uh, in order to address the issues. And for that reason, I think uh, the question about whether they're now getting to the top of uh, the rate rise cycle, I think uh, means that uh, they've achieved their goal and they can now look at, to see what the data does and will able to influence uh, and have the tools to engineer the soft landing that we're looking for, which after all is just a slowdown after the very strong growth rates that we've had.
0: It would be quite, quite amazing. The Fed doubted inflation, everyone else doubted the Fed. So it would be quite a turn of events if they can engineer that soft landing. But Ben, I know you have some views on the Fed's future moves, including this week. Are you gonna side with traders this time around and bet on a skip? Um, yeah, I
2: mean, I, I, I do think uh, we get a skip this week. The market is usually uh, pretty good at uh, figuring these things out. Um, what I always do find interesting is that even when the market ends up doing what uh, people expect, the reaction to that is often um, not what would be expected. And um, I, I'm wondering if we do get some sort of... Uh, uh, a, a short-term sell-off if we get uh, if we get that pause, um, whether it's just because the uh, news is priced in, so you get to sell the news reaction that uh, is you know such a cliche on uh, Wall Street or. If the Fed is able to do uh, what some people have referred to as a hawkish pause, saying, "Hey, we're just taking a one-month uh, break here, and you know, next month we may have to start hiking again," um, so I'll be curious to see uh, how the market reacts when uh, the, the Fed does uh, d- does what I think it will do, which is uh, to, uh, pause its interest rate hikes.
0: So everybody will be listening, in other words, to Powell's press conference that follows the FOMC meeting. That's on Wednesday afternoon. That's right. And we'll be listening for that hawkish pause language.
2: Yeah, we'll be listening for something. I mean, he'll he'll have something to say. and I think it's just a lot of it is uh, dependent on you know market positioning as well. Did it, we rally a bit too much into uh, in, into this uh, meeting?
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so let's look at the economy for a bit. We've established that we don't see a recession imminently. What do you see ahead, Chris? Why do you think the economy has been so resilient?
1: Well, I think again, I think we've come out of the bottlenecks that we've uh, that the pandemic has caused with uh, a lot of um, savings uh, that we've seen in the U.S., but we've also seen it in the in Europe uh, and in China, and so there's a lot of underlying demand, and I think we're seeing a lot of need for investment. Uh, it's in the different uh, stimulus and infrastructure investment acts that we've seen in the states, but we're also seeing it. Uh, more globally Uh, so if I think from that perspective there's uh, simply a lot of demand and a lot of money being put to work uh, that uh, is going to drive the economy and uh, that's the underlying thing that uh, will then um, mean that companies do better as well it means its explanation for why um, uh, it's it's the explanation for why uh, they've been doing as well as they have its explanation for why uh, employment is uh, as resilient as it is and as the scissors closes that means that prices go up we have inflation but at the same time wages are going up which they are it also means that the consumer has more um, nominal disposable income and it means that uh, that kind of consumer spending is supported as well
0: it's a good point so before we move on to this week's earnings which ben will discuss i want to ask you about the investment case for europe you are calling us today from london You do a lot of business on the continent what's your assessment of the european economy and financial markets
1: well i think that they're also um it's europe is a very large consumer market Um, uh, It's a a very large economy, the European Union is the single largest economic block. It also has some great globally leading companies uh, that do business, some of the ones are are the ones that uh, that we invest in. So I think it has a lot of resilience. It's been really battered by what happened last year in terms of energy prices, uh, because unlike the US, which is energy self-sufficient, Europe relies on imported energy and there was a, I think, calculated risk that was taken in terms of having some of that energy supply come from Russia in the form of uh, gas through pipelines. And Germany was more exposed to that than some other countries, but it's really uh, across much of the European economy. Uh, With what happened uh, with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that clearly it uh, completely disrupted those markets. It caused gas prices to spike, and you had a very severe impact that was offset, however, by equally decisive action by the governments and by the central banks. And so with the easing and the support that's taken place, I think Europe has come through it really quite well. Uh, As we've now seen, the gamble has uh, not worked. Uh, Gas prices are now below where they were uh, at the uh, beginning of the invasion. And gas storage for the end of this year is looking to be full uh, in the next couple of weeks or months. And so uh, the situation is now completely different. It's taken a year Uh, really to get off the Russian gas and to replace it. It's cost a lot of money, uh, but that's what governments do. It's how we got through the pandemic, and it's how European governments have now gotten us through in Europe through this crisis. And I think uh, now it's, uh, again, it's reasonably well positioned uh, with uh, solid uh, employment, uh, with uh, a global economy that is overall supportive, uh, and with uh, companies that are well positioned to take advantage of the opportunities.
2: And Chris, do you have any thoughts on um, on Japan? Because I know that's one that uh, it seems like uh, people are finally get, starting to get excited about uh, after it's, it's been, what forty years uh, since the last time they were excited about it.
1: Well, I think the Japanese economy we've seen has had now some sustained uh, growth numbers, albeit very low ones. But I really think that, especially as fundamental investors, we're really just trying to invest in in great companies that can help to drive. Um, uh, of course, in some way, global prosperity, but also generate value. Uh, I think we really have to look at it from a a company and company perspective and um, uh, as well as uh, the overall economic perspective. The fact that uh, Japan is now at a point where they are uh, growing on a slow but sustained basis, where it looks like the deflation that we've all been worried about for so long, uh, is now behind us I think is is very positive uh, and uh, there are great companies there uh, that can also drive things. So I think that uh, it is in a much better position. I think the nature of the economy is different because the demographics are so different, their markets are different, although they have all of uh, obviously Asia that uh, is uh, the close market uh, that they can address. Um, and they have companies that are managed in many ways differently. Um, with a different alignment um, between shareholders and um, managements and other stakeholders. So I think these are all things that we have to take into account, but the fact that we're through the argument of the deflation are now in a somewhat sustained growth scenario, and therefore um, uh, there's also a more positive outlook there, is is very good for Japan, and it's very good for the global economy.
0: Another plus that will drive markets, it seems. So let's move on to this week's earnings reports. Ben, you're gonna take us through a few of them. Oracle, for instance, has had quite a comeback in the past year. This is a so-called old tech company that has found new life in the cloud. The company reports later today. What's the story with Oracle?
2: Well, for Oracle, it's really all about uh, the cloud and a little bit of AI as well. Um, The stock's up 6% today, more than 6%, uh, because it got upgraded over at Wolf Research. Um, And uh, the analyst uh, basically came out and said that they're going to, the earnings and sales are picking up, and it's all because of the Oracle cloud. It's it's becoming this thing that is really just driving everything for the company. Um, My biggest worry on all this, all this excitement around Oracle uh, just heading into this number is. That you know, everyone is very confident that Oracle is going to be able to to beat their numbers, both the uh, the sales and and the earnings. Um, but the stock uh, seems kind of priced for it. Um, you know, with this six point five percent gain today, it's actually now up thirty seven point six percent over the last three months. So basically, that's
0: amazing.
2: Yeah, it's 38% since uh, the last time uh, it reported earnings, and that always has to make me a, a, a little bit worried if I'm trying to trade this. Um, it's the, the, the kind of move that uh, you want to wait for a pullback on. I think you know Barons has been fairly bullish on, on Oracle in the past, and you know hopefully people have been long this stock before the uh, the, uh, the this recent rally. Um, but we're going to get good numbers, but I think they have to be um nvidia like um the way that we saw that uh nvidia came out uh, when they reported and not only did they uh report great numbers but they raised their guidance their revenue guidance for the next quarter by i think 50 percent or so um i think it would take that kind of no- number to uh for oracle to really rally into uh, after this uh, print that's coming after the close today
0: maybe a sell the news situation in other words
2: uh very much so
0: if they don't okay So Lennar, a home builder, also reports tomorrow, this stock too has had a very good year, even though the housing market hasn't. So what's driving the strength in Lennar's stock?
2: I think with uh, Lennar and and other home builders is that uh, because rates have risen so quickly, People are reluctant to move. If you have a, uh, a you know a mortgage rate of three percent, three and a half percent, below three uh, percent, you're not you're going to look at the mortgage rates now, which uh, I think are over six still. And are you really going to want to move um, if you don't have to? And so there's not a lot of uh, new home sales. Um, and uh or, or sorry, not a lot of existing home sales uh, or homes for sale. And that actually, I think, helps uh, a lot um, for a company like uh, Lennar. And they also seem to have gotten to the point where uh, the incentives aren't they, they don't even have as many incentives to get people to buy new home sales. Um, and so that's uh, that's helping as well. There there are issues there um, just around the fact that the, the housing market, it, it, I mean, we still have this uh, um, houses are still Expensive rates are higher. And so that's, uh, that's a problem. But um, it is, uh, you know, the, the, the market seems to have accepted that. Um, and it seems to have accepted that earnings are going to be a lot lower this quarter. They're um, expected to report a profit of $2.31. And that's uh, less than half of the $4.69 it reported the, uh, the last, uh, last year at this time. Um, but the market seems to have accepted that this is kind of where the trough is and that things might be heading back up.
0: So I can't help asking, Chris, are housing markets as crazy in Europe as they have been in the U.S. with supply shortages and prices out of control?
1: Well, they've been certainly very robust. Uh, in Europe, We you have to look at it on a country-by-country basis. We're based in London. Sure. so. Uh, we can have a very clear view on what's going on here and you know because of different you know setups and ways that countries are organized and 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 laws uh, it's different certainly in the UK the situation I think is uh, is as uh, extreme if not more because there's unlike in the US where Uh, In principle, there is, you know, there's land and so you can have new bills. Uh, In the UK, there's an absolute shortage uh, of simply housing, and so therefore the residential real estate market is completely congested uh, because of this lack of supply. And at the same time, what you were just saying uh, applies, which is that with rates so much higher, um, people are reluctant to take on new debt we've seen um, here. Uh, with the very strong inflation uh, that has taken place, uh, that banks have pulled mortgage offers. Um, We just had a headline today again that Santander, which is one of the big banks, has actually pulled mortgages so they're no longer available, I think, uh, until June 14. Um, And so it's a really extreme situation, and that's compounded by the fact that here people have short-dated mortgages. You generally don't have uh, long-term fixed mortgages like you have in the U.S. Uh, You have uh, two-year fixed deals. And so uh, the issue is that here a lot of people are going to be rolling off uh, the lower interest rates that they've been paying. And uh, the interest burden that they're going to have is going to be significantly higher. So the housing market is clearly something to watch, um, and it's uh, going to be a, a very volatile ride
0: that's interesting something we don't cover very much and perhaps we should know a bit more about it but let's get back to earnings we we're going to hear from Kroger the grocery giant this week Ben you made a good point to me in the office earlier today that food at home producer price inflation is actually below consumer price inflation so that suggests some good margin opportunities for a company like Kroger if I'm reading the situation correctly yeah that's, is that that's your right. Read?
2: Yeah, that's that that that's exactly right. I mean, what there there's kind of a push pull here. What's going on is that uh, food prices um, are food inflation is decelerating, and that means that sales growth um, for Kroger is going to decelerate as well, um, just because they aren't uh, growing. Uh, the, the inflation isn't putting, pushing the prices up, uh, up more. There's also been uh, rising promotional activity. Um, the expectation that you know, people have looked at uh, some of what's been happening in places like Dollar General and uh, seen the promotional activity there, and thinking, you know what, uh, this is probably impacting Kroger as well. But as you pointed out, if you look at food at home inflation, um, the CPI is still going up faster than PPI, which should mean that Kroger is. Uh, paying um, less for uh, what's coming in and it's able to sell it for um, by quite a bit. And that, as that gap grows, their margins should increase as well. And the stock hasn't done terribly well. It's only up 3.6% this year. Uh, it's actually down 9.6% over the past 12 months. Um, and so if it can uh, produce a beat here and show that it's sort of dealing with um, the uh d- dealing with this kind of dynamic in food pricing uh, the stock should do pretty well it's also um you know not terribly expensive it's around 10 times uh, earnings at this point and it's five-year average is about 12 times
0: all right we'll keep an eye on that for sure finally i want to talk about adobe the software company it's reporting on thursday tell us how the quarter looks and then i'm going to turn to chris for the long-term view since i know he's in adobe
2: Sure. So uh, Adobe uh, uh, expected to report a profit of three dollars and seventy nine cents. That would be up from about three dollars and thirty five cents last year. Sales uh, are also uh, going to be uh, doing pretty well. Um, What has been interesting is how much uh, to me, at least, is just how much uh, this is. uh, uh, Adobe has become an A.I. stock um, that, uh, you know, A.I. was going to help uh, grow its products. um, and, and allow them to charge more for their products. And so uh, there's a lot of excitement uh, on the street because of this. Um, and, uh, you know, the, again, this is always my worry in the short term is like, uh, even for the long term winners, do you have to worry that as you're heading into uh, a print and if you look at the, the, the chart here, um, you know, the stock has gone really from 350 to, uh, let's call it almost 470. It's a 467.96 right now. Um, So it's a pretty massive uh, increase in really a short period of time. That's, I think, about the last uh, month and a half to two months or so. Not even that, sorry. That was over the, you know, really since the mid-May. So that's over the last month. Um, And that's a really big rise. And so, again, I'm worried that you're just getting a lot of excitement, um, a a lot of good news priced into the stock. It is getting more expensive uh, in the short term. And so I would just worry about that dynamic heading into the print.
0: Chris, what do you make of that argument? You've made a big bet on A.I. stocks, including
1: Adobe. Yeah, well, we think that there's you know a bunch of drivers. We think there's globalization, there's digitalization and there's investment. So a lot of good stuff going on. But within digitalization, I think that um, the opportunities that are arising because of A.I. are enormous. Uh, They are compounding and and, uh, similar to the ones that we're seeing from the metaverse, um, from industry 4.0 and from uh, other drivers that require computing capacity and NVIDIA has been uh, our largest and our highest conviction position, we bought that in February of last year, Uh, we have a position in ASML which is the European leader in um, semiconductor capital equipment with uh, the nearshoring that's taking place. And Adobe is really an underappreciated beneficiary. We've seen it coming um, because they've been a pioneer in moving from um, the software to the the subscription model. And it turns out they're not a net loser from AI. They're in fact a winner. And that's because um, what Shantana and Orion said and you guys had an amazing interview with him uh, just now. Um, uh, He's basically said that um, uh, AI is going to be getting people to create more images and that's after all what their software products do. And he thinks that TAM is 200 billion uh, when Adobe's revenues are 20. And so I completely appreciate short-term uh, concerns around that, but we're long-term investors. We're buying Adobe for 5 to 10 years, and we want to own it for 25 like we've uh, owned other stocks. And if you look at where it's trading, okay, so the market cap might be just over $200 billion. Um, But we think that if you look at it on just as something as simple as a price-to-earnings basis, uh, then um, you're now looking at something um, at a stock that is, uh, we look at it at a five-year-out basis. It's only trading um, uh, on our numbers on something like 14 to 15 times earnings, um, uh, going down from uh, about 23 times in 2024, so not this, but next year. So we think that's a very reasonable valuation for a company that has a tremendous runway ahead.
0: So let's take a closer look at NVIDIA, what a great, greatly timed buy on your part, the market cap is approaching a trillion dollars. How much higher do you think the stock can go and what will be driving it?
1: Well, absolutely. We bought NVIDIA. We've we've had NVIDIA on our wish list of stocks for a, a long time. And so we bought it in February of last year uh, when the valuation had already declined very substantially. It wasn't a great timing. Uh, it declined another 40 yes, percent or so.
0: I, I, I take <laughs> um, it back. Only looking over the long haul does it seem.
1: Well, like yes, it. but we bought some more in November. That was better. Uh, and it's that was quite good. Almost, yeah, that's that's tripled since then, so we'll take yes. it. We've actually done a CAGR of about 35%. Uh, so it really goes to show that um, you you have to stick with the fundamentals and keep your conviction. Uh, the case on NVIDIA, uh, it's, it's hard to say what can be added, but um, uh, is that uh, the market is uh, very significant. The GPUs and DPUs, these processing units they produce, uh, are state-of-the-art it has a massive backlog for its products Uh, they are currently obviously selling them on ration Um, if they're selling them at all in some cases they're just providing them on lease and so that is one of the key um, uh, things that is uh, impacting uh, the business and is causing uh, this excitement Um, and it's one of the reasons why the uh, surprise was so large but it's really the idea that ai has so much longer to grow Uh, in terms of its uh, addressable market uh, because it is the the way in which uh, we're going to be transforming uh, the digital experience and so whether again you think about AI with all the different use cases whether you think of the metaverse that's coming without the oculi or the other devices but as a basically computer games based way of accessing the digital experience or whether you think at the enormous change that is going to take place in industrial manufacturing, uh, where companies are going to use the SAP-type systems that run on um, uh, the um, uh, Oracle databases on the Cisco servers, that was the previous paradigm. Uh, they're now running on cloud computing, um, which is, you know, of course, uh, after all, Amazon and Alphabet. Uh, and, uh, and Microsoft as well, um, uh, but with unlimited computing capacity. And they're now going to put AI solutions on it um, that mean that uh, they're going to be that much more efficient and um, will be able to generate um, uh, that much more benefit. So I think there's it's really the addressable market that you've got. Uh, we have made assumptions around that. And so we think that um, with the long headwind, tailwinds that uh, Nvidia has um, uh, while it's trading now, Um, In the 50s, we think that, again, um, on a 2027, so in five years, roughly, perspective, it's going to go down to 30 times. um, And that seems to me a very reasonable price to pay for a business uh, that is going to be the global leader uh, in uh, its industry for years to come.
0: So we had a question from a listener, Jack. He wanted to know your views on whether generative AI is in a bubble and will enterprises really find applications for it? It sounds like you don't think so, but I'll let you speak for yourself.
1: Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Uh, I think there are tremendous use cases. And I think actually one of the really most interesting things actually, uh, frankly, came from an, an example, came from the interview um, uh, that Shantanu Narayan uh, had with Barons, where he talked about Um, the way that uh, Adobe is using licensed images where they control the rights and can protect the data. The issue is with ChatGPT, which is the first of these language-based generative AI applications, is that it's based on effectively scouring the internet. And so there are a lot of companies, in particular in financial services, insurance companies, for example, um, but other types of businesses that need to analyze tremendous amounts of data that's also language based but uh, they have difficulties because with chat gpt uh, when you upload your data it is unclear how it's protected because it's not part of that particular application whereas what adobe has said is that um, with their applications they're specifically using Uh, images that they own in their stock which is you know vertical integration Uh, and therefore if you are using uh, their application and you're training it with your images or you're using it to uh, generate content for yourself you're doing it in a safe way where you have paid a license for the content that you're working with and where adobe is in fact protecting your data in the way that say an sap or or another big um, uh, software application Uh, platform will do. So that is the direction that it's moving in. The use cases for these things uh, go far beyond just the kind of consumer uh, facing um, uh, interactions that we're seeing. It really goes into data analysis uh, at very large scale. Uh, It goes into the creation of um, uh, visual content. It goes into this infilling that uh, Adobe was talking about, uh, for example. So there are tremendous use cases uh, that are going to take place. And I think between uh, this expansion of the generative AI case, I don't think that's in a bubble, but it's also sort of, what do we mean? It's not in a bubble for Nvidia because generative AI is only one of the use cases for their processors. It's not in a bubble for Adobe because generative AI is also only one of the use cases uh, for Adobe software. Uh, product. So I think the companies that are participating in Gen of AI as one of the industries will benefit tremendously from it. But let's not forget that there's the metaverse, which is related to that. And let's not forget that there's the Internet of Things and the digitalization of uh, industrial production, which are also all a tailwinds for these companies.
0: So we had a question from Howard. It's kind of a trading question. Would you buy NVIDIA, Adobe and the like now or would you wait for a pullback? stocks
1: I think there's only one uh, answer to give which is you have to do the work you have to look at the fundamentals of the company you have to take a view on um, what uh, you think the value is uh, and if you think that the value is attractive then you buy uh, that's the decision that we took in Nvidia in February of last year it was a terrible decision uh, for a couple <laughs> of months the stock declined you know 20% is one thing 40 to 50 is another um, uh, but you stick to your guns. And of course, if you can you know, add value to market timing, then you should do that. But uh, we're fundamental investors and we're led by uh, what the companies do and what our view is of the valuation. So I say buy now.
0: Okay, long way of saying buy now. So we had a question from Steve related, what do you think about Apple and whether it will be able to leverage AI to boost its business?
1: Um, I think I think of Apple is is clearly the the biggest company in the whole space. Uh, It's uh, an astonishing franchise. Um, I think that uh, it will very clearly be able to use all of these different um, big drivers that we've talked about. Again, AI, uh, the metaverse, uh, to some extent, other drivers as a way of uh, growing its business and reinforcing its franchise, as I think other companies will as well. I think the big question about Apple is the fact that so much of uh, their business is still generated by hardware, um, and they produce astonishing phones, and they produce astonishing uh, other uh, hardware products uh, that, like the iPads and uh, all the other uh, type of uh, stuff that we know, um, but ultimately that is now at a point where it is getting to closer to a point of saturation certainly in the us and in europe uh, in other markets as well and so the question is how long can you innovate and how long there we're clearly in a very strong replacement demands uh, uh, cycle and can you keep on effectively increasing pricing or reduced costs to drive your business from these hardware sales as you're trying to increase the revenues uh, from uh, software and from applications um, from my perspective we don't own it we have a lot of stocks uh, that are in the similar space. We like Amazon, uh, we like um, uh, we like uh, Alphabet, uh, we like Adobe, uh, we like Nvidia, we like ASML, we like um, uh, we like uh, uh, other types of companies. But um, so I think that we don't have to own every single one of them. And my perspective on Apple is that uh, I think it is much more expensive uh, for the prospects that it has because I can see the addressable markets, I can see the margins, uh, and I can see uh, the profitability and returns that the other companies will generate. And I don't feel they're as constrained as I think the outlook for Apple is.
0: That's a fair answer. Interesting. So, question for Ben, coming from John. You talked about growth sectors today. Where do you see the value sectors?
2: Um, you know, I, part of it is I see the ones that, uh, you know, I look at the sectors that have, haven't have participated this year. Um, you know, I, I think energy is still a, an interesting one. Um, it's down 8% now, and so finding the, the companies that are, are really well run and can uh, produce good profits, even with uh, some lower oil prices, is not a bad place to look. Healthcare, too, has had a a tougher start to this year, and uh, there are some good companies, even with growth, uh, to find there. And then I think in industrials, I think industrials are going to be a a big beneficiary of things like uh, AI in the cloud, and that uh, if the economy, if we do get a soft landing, um, there's some industrials that have gotten beaten up that uh, would, would look pretty good. So I think those are the three sectors I would probably be focusing on.
0: Well, Howard asked a follow up question. Are there any non tech companies worth buying anymore? And I think you answered that one. So let me ask Chris, you're an investor in industrial stocks. You like Eaton, you like Sika, the European chemicals company. What's the bull case for these stocks in your view?
1: Well, I completely concur. I think there's a lot of stocks that are attractive and that um, have uh, great prospects. I think in particular on these kinds of forward-looking industrials, there are tremendous opportunities. And that really is because I think we're almost like in the 1950s, the uh, public and private capital base in the US in Europe, but also in China, is as old as it's been. And we have to renew it. If you even just think of the concrete, the Eisenhower highways and the ports and the airports that were put in, um, uh, those are crumbling. Uh, They're crumbling in Europe and they're also starting to crumble uh, in China, where they're now also 20 to 30 years old. And at the same time, we've had these tremendous challenges, which are climate change and the uh, energy transition to more sustainable Uh, production of energy and we've seen it um, uh, even with the leverage that a country like russia can have for one year uh, on an economy as large as europe um, uh, that itself is an incentive for energy transition and then there's the question around uh, climate change and productivity and so forth so there's a lot of underlying issues um, that these companies can address and then the point is we've developed a lot of the technologies to be able to address them we just haven't produced them at scale and implemented them because we've been worried about the economic cycle. And we've been worried, I think, certainly since the global financial crisis, about overcapacity. And that's one of the reasons why we have the bottlenecks, because we haven't been investing. And so this is now coming together into what I think is a super cycle for industrials. Uh, the amount of money uh, that is expected to be invested just to head towards net zero and that zero is going to happen in part because it's uh, likely to be the right thing, but also because there's going to be carbon pricing uh, by governments who are going to enforce it, that amount is $1.3 trillion. Um, and so these are enormous amounts uh, that are going to be invested. Uh, there is, uh, for example, the um, investment that is going to be put into semiconductor capacity that is being supported by um, uh, the uh, U.S. government acts uh, in order to diversify from the dependence on Taiwan. With the geopolitics going where they are, so uh, there's a lot of investment that is going into uh, these areas, and that is a uh, it is a, a billion dollar opportunity for these companies. So now Eaton, if I if uh, if we want to talk about that, Eaton is an American uh, capital goods company. It's about a 75 billion market cap. We've got it on 19 times this uh, this uh, 2024 going down to 14 times, so proper cheap. And 70% of it comes from um, electrical segments, uh, which are entirely focused on those areas. It's about the grid and making it renewable. It's about data. It's about um, uh, power management for data centers and warehouses and semiconductor uh, manufacturing uh, facilities. And it's about electrical vehicle charging. So it's a company that has an enormous runway ahead uh, that is uh, cheap, that has been one of our top performers, uh, but that has been held back this year.
0: I could talk about stocks with you all day and I'm sure Ben could too. Absolutely. <laughs> Unfortunately though, we have to call it a day today. But thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today and sharing your views. And thank you to Ben also, as always. I want to thank, thank our listeners. Oh, a pleasure. I want to thank our listeners too for tuning in and please join us again tomorrow on Barron's Live for managing your money and more, more on AI and tech stocks. Baron senior writer Lauren Foster will speak with Dan Suzuki, deputy chief investment officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors, about how how RBA's portfolios are positioned and where that firm sees opportunities now. Should be a nice continuation of what we've been discussing today. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.